0: Today's episode is brought to you by the best portfolio tracking tool available for Aussie investors, ShareSite. Put away the spreadsheet. ShareSite makes it ridiculously simple with automatic holding updates, comprehensive tax and performance reporting, wrapped up in an easy to use fully online system. My favourite thing about ShareSite is how easy it makes tax returns. Simply generate your tax report at the end of the financial year and voila, you're done. And here's the best part, it's 100% free for users that have under 10 holdings. If you have over 10 holdings and want to sign up, make sure you use my link to get the first two months for free. Head over to AussieFirebug.com forward slash ShareSite to receive this special offer. Even if you're signing up using the free plan, using that link will score you two months for free if you ever decide to own more than 10 holdings. Finish tax time with a click of a button using ShareSite by signing up today. That's AussieFirebug.com forward slash ShareSite for your free two months. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Ask Firebug Fridays, the weekly fire Q&A where you guys get to submit your questions and I try my best to answer them. The three questions we're going over today is, does gold play a part in our financial independence plans moving forward? Are fire chasers missing out on returns by only investing passively? And how we manage to spend less than $50,000 a year living the lifestyle that we live? Let's jump straight in. Nothing in this episode is financial advice. The following Q&A is for general information only and should not be taken as constituting professional advice. You should always do your own research when making any financial decision. Our first question today comes in from Julia who writes in, Thanks for the great content. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on gold. Is earning some gold part of your financial plan? Thanks a lot for your time Julia. Hello Julia, thanks for your question. Gold to me has always been a hedge against inflation and something I'd consider if I wanted to reduce volatility within the portfolio. I don't even really consider it an investment per se because it doesn't generate any cash flow so you're relying 100% on capital gains for it to work uh, which was one of the biggest reasons we moved away from real estate which uh, as hopefully a lot of people know, Real estate in Australia is is really a capital gains play. Ninety um, percent, I'd say, uh, try to buy a property and sell it for a higher price. There are some properties in the country that you can get pretty good yield on, but um, those are you know few and far in between. So, um, so for us, we moved away from from real estate into shares, uh, and a big reason for that was. The reliance that property had on capital gains, so I don't really like that side of um, gold. Um, it's more of a store of wealth. Uh, I look at it anyway as more of a store of wealth, which historically has had an inverse relationship with the stocks and property, and this is uh, good for volatility. So, when the stock market crashes, historically gold has risen. So that will smooth out your returns over the uh, the the course of your I- investing. So you're not going to take a hit all at once it's going to one goes down uh, gold hopefully go up and if gold goes down hopefully shares go up so that smooths that volatility so if you have an issue with volatility then gold or precious metals in general can play a part in your portfolio but uh, I definitely don't have an issue with it I understand that it's just the nature of the beast the stock market will go up it will go down I'm more much more concerned about the cash flow that it generates every year so we can hopefully live off it one day and that's what I look at and how many units I've got in ETFs and LICs. Historically, shares have absolutely smashed gold as well over the long term. I have a graph on the site, the total return stock index, S&P 500 versus gold and silver over the last 50 years and it's not even close. You can check it out. I've got a link to the longtermtrends.net website that I got it from Um, and if you go back a 100 years, it's even the, the gap is even wider um make sure you look at the total return index as well and not just the the one that doesn't include dividends which is all, I always find uh, I always find it strange where people usually the only reason they do that is if they're pushing an agenda to say that stocks aren't as good as this or they're trying to do something with the data but um the total the total return index is the one you want to be looking at any any graph or if you're comparing any index because that's the one where it's factoring in dividends that are paid as well whereas the other one on that side I think it's a first graph it's only looking at the share price and how the share price went up and down so it's failing to realize that the the whole time that an investor held that share um, it was paying dividends now it's not a lot like if US shares don't return that much but you know, over 100 years, that's a lot of money and if you reinvest, if reinvest the dividend, obviously you can buy more units and it keeps growing and so on and so on. So, uh, always always look at the total, uh, total return index. So, where was I? So, uh, yeah, basically, in a nutshell, we want to invest in assets that pay us and gold doesn't fit this bill um, because we're looking to reach financial independence. We need that cash flow in retirement. So gold doesn't really do it for me at this stage. Now this may change in the future when maybe we're not as concerned about cash flow and perhaps we're looking to diversify into precious metals and maintain our wealth because there's a world of difference between uh, striving for financial independence and getting to a point where the snowball in the portfolio is so big that you just need to maintain it. But there's a lot of people, especially people that maybe aren't as aren't as educated in investing but having inherited a large sum of money and i'm talking like maybe hundreds of millions or billions of dollars that perhaps their grandparents were super rich and like it got passed down to their parents and it got passed down to them they're at a stage some people that they can do whatever the hell they want they got so much money but and but They're scared they might lose their fortune or something like that. So they're not really after the seven to nine percent long term returns that we're looking for. They just want to maintain their wealth. So I can understand, um, for them, it's more important that the volatility and their portfolio is just simply maintained. And obviously they want to outpace inflation a little bit, but it's, it's just a different game for people to, for, for people that are looking to maintain their wealth versus fire chasers like us looking to build a portfolio that's going to generate enough cash flow in retirement so to sum that up we're not looking at gold right now it's not even on my radar potentially going forward into the future maybe um, but I sort of doubt it I guess time will tell anyway hope that answers your question and thanks for writing in our second question today comes in from Tanya And it's quite a big one. Tanya writes in, Hi Aussie Firebug, congratulations to you and what you've achieved and continue to achieve on your fire journey. Thank you for your incredible generosity in sharing your knowledge, passion and enthusiasm inspirational. Up until about six months ago, I exclusively purchased ASX listed shares directly, but in the last six months decided to start purchasing ETFs. Now that I've had the ability to compare apples with apples, I have to say that my annualized returns for the direct shares purchased are at least twice that of the ETF benchmark for v- VAS FAS, over the entire six years. I'm not writing to boast. In fact, my purchases have been largely recommended by two share sites I subscribe to, the Intelligent Investor and Barefoot Investor. So I can't, I can hardly take any credit. I know the FIRE community is so bullish on indexes, but I'm not sure that you are not missing out on some reasonable returns. I know the theory that most people don't beat the index, and probably this is true in context. Little of what Buffett Buffett says in regards to share investing is wrong, but I think with a little bit of expert advice, and by that I don't mean full server brokers who only work for themselves, I reckon that solely investing in indexes might be limiting your returns." Anyway, I guess I just write to you to raise the issue with you and share my thoughts. Once again, congratulations. I wish I had your insight at your age. Thank you. Take care, Tanya. Quite a big one. Thank you, Tanya. Um, this is, well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. Very nice. Um, I also, I really like receiving messages and stuff. It's a real good motivator for uh, me to continue producing content, so really appreciate that. This is a question... Um, I've grappled, I've grappled with this question often myself. If we look back to the global financial crisis, so right now, let me lay some context. Right now, the whole portfolio is um, it's either ETFs or listed investment companies. So there is a little bit of active management in the LICs, but it's not like I'm individually picking stocks. It's still a, like a... a almost a passive approach with the LICs. Not a full passive, but if you look at their history, it's pretty pretty similar to the um, index. So during the GFC back in 2008, 2009, some of the big four banks were trading so low that <clears throat> if you had bought their shares during that time at the low point, they had some ridiculous yield back then of like 13% plus franking credits. We now know that they recovered, but at the time there was a real concern that some of the banks could have went bust, uh, which is why the, the the price fell so much because there was uncertainty. Um, but still, it would have been extremely tempting to swoop in to swoop in on some of those shares and clean them up um, when they were really really cheap. However, as you've mentioned. The FIRE community does love indexing because we don't need to pick the winners and losers. Uh, we just buy nearly everything. We buy the whole index. Could we be missing out on better returns? Absolutely. Do I care about getting better returns? Not really. I'm more than happy with the idea of 7 to 9% returns over the long term using ETFs and LICs. I personally don't think the extra risk is worth trying to beat the market, but everyone's different. I I get it that it's a bit of fun to try to pick winners here and there. And to be honest, I wouldn't completely rule out the idea of allocating a small percentage of the portfolio, like maybe five to 10% to individual stocks. I, I don't have an issue with that. And that's something that maybe I'll even do. Um, if we have a big recession or when I I should say when we have a big recession, when that is who the hell knows, but you know, it's always coming. It's always going to be there in the future. Um, I personally don't feel the need to do it at this stage, um, but yeah, as I said, when the cra- when the next crash comes, it's it could be very tempting uh, to pick up some cheap shares as everyone is panicking and heading for the exits. I will say this though: so as indexing becomes more mainstream, the likelihood of active investors outperforming the index increases, in my opinion. Think about it. So back in the day everyone was trying to outperform everyone and charging big, big fees along the way. But that game is always going to have winners and it's always going to have losers by its very nature. And if you factor in the management fees, there was a very high chance that you'd underperform the market even if the managers did beat the market. If it, Once you factored in their management fee, usually majority of people um, underperformed. In my opinion, index investing solved this issue. But let's say, for example... The, the majority of the market was made up of passive investors. Now, I know passive investing is on a, a historic rise at the moment, but we haven't reached the tipping point where majority of uh, investors uh, make up the market. I think it is trending towards that way, but I don't think it will ever happen. And I'll tell you why. In theory, the market, if it was made up of just 100% passive or a ridiculously high Um, percentage of passive investors. In theory, the market would become inefficient and there would be a lot of opportunities for active investors to snag a bargain, especially within the small cap and emerging market sector. If the market reaches a point where the majority of investors are not doing research or looking into anything other than the top 200 companies by market cap, um, which is 200, 300, 500, it doesn't matter. If you look at these ETFs that are tracking the index, they're looking at the market cap. They're not looking at anything other than, um, market capitalization and how big the company is. Uh, and I don't look at anything. I don't even look at any financial statements or any, any research into what I'm investing in. I simply go with the index, um, diversify and be done with it. But I don't do, I don't look at the, the other things that these active investors are looking at. So I don't do that, but active investors, professional or amateur in that situation they could feast on the inefficiencies of the market and I would I would wager that you would see a swing back in favor for active management. This isn't of course until the op- opportunities start to decline as more and more active investors gobble them up and the extra fees once again becomes not worth it. I think it's like a seesaw between passive and investor uh, passive and active and in my opinion, that will go on forever it will it will swing one way to where there's too much fees in management and there's too many active management um, people trying to outperform each other and it makes more sense to go passive and then if it goes too passive just by the nature of the market the inefficiencies will be there and the active, active investors will be able to clean up and it will swing back towards active investing that's my opinion on it um, but I don't no one really knows, especially me. Uh, but that's my take anyway on the whole situation. The whole um, active versus passive, and and picking your own chairs. And the last thing I want to say is, um, whilst you have done well during the last six years, I would argue that that's not a long enough time frame. To conclude that your individual stock picking has outperformed the index, um, I think 15 to 20 years is probably a better time frame, and after a recession or two uh, has come and gone. So thanks for the question. Good luck with it all, and thanks for your interesting question. Our last question for today comes in from Cameron, who writes in: "Hi mate, I'm so happy to find our Australian Fire blog." i have be reading and listen listening to people like Mr. Moustache, uh, Mr. Money Moustache rather, Mad Scientist, etc. for quite some time. One thing that has always annoyed me is seeing how little they live off and not understanding how they can possibly make that work. I would love to see a breakdown of your yearly spending habits. I've had a look through your blog and can't find anything that matches this. I notice you seem to live off only fifty thousand a year with you and your partner, which also seems too bloody good to me. Ha ha. I look forward to seeing what sort of expenses you count, thanks Cameron, Closet FI Addict. Hello Cameron, thank you for your question. Uh, First thing I link to is you can take a look at our spending review uh, which I've linked to in the article um, or my response on the site and that's from 2017 to 2018, so July 2017 to June 2018 so the financial year that's how we we do our reviews at the end of financial year rather than at a, on a yearly basis now I'm late with our current one um, I really need to publish our one from 18 to 19 it's just it's it's hard because we moved to a different country and we had have a different set of banks over here in the UK so um, I'll get around to it eventually but it's just a, it's a lot more confusing just because of the whole we move country situation. Um, I will publish it, publish it eventually though. So have a look at that savings review, mate. Uh, that should answer most of your questions. Um, in that, we list absolutely everything we spend money on. So um, take a look, have a squiz and let me know what you think. In my personal experience and from reading a lot of fire blogs and just um, having people write in... You need to nip the big four in the bud and 90% of people will spend their monies in these order, uh, sorry, spend their their money in these areas and I've listed it from um, from most expensive uh, and at the top, without a doubt, most people, majority of people will spend the most money in their life on housing. So housing's at the top, food is number two, transport is number three and holidays is number four. You can get those under control you got a really good chance at reducing your expenses, your yearly exp- expenses. So, uh, well, I want to touch as well that the, there is other things other than these top four, and the smaller things do add up over time. Like you got to be careful about them. Like this is, you know, your classic. Do you do you need a seven dollar coffee every day? It does add up over time if you if you work it out on a yearly basis and how much money that could have returned if you had invested it. It does add up. I don't want to. You know, not say the little things don't, but the, the big four, in my opinion, is housing, food, and trans tr- housing, food, transport, and holidays for majority of Australians. So, with housing, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. If you want to buy a house in Melbourne or Sydney, you're going to pay a big price for that privilege, and you're you're going to delay your fire date. There's no getting around it. What you can do is rent in a city and that can actually speed your time to fire up if you can take advantage of a high paying job in, in, a, in a good job market in the city um, that otherwise wouldn't have existed in the country or maybe it's paying not as much. I know for me personally, um, the IT industry is a lot more lucrative in the city, uh, Melbourne or London where I currently currently am, than, <clears throat> than the exact same job. Uh, being in the country so that's a good example there's other industries that do this as well uh, but there's plenty of jobs uh, on that note there are plenty of jobs in the country where housing, afford- housing affordability is a lot better so the house you pay such a big price to own a home that's like something I cannot stress enough if you don't need to own a home and you don't you know if you think to yourself you've got to question everything why do I want to own a home? Is it because I want to own it or is it because other people, it's it's what everyone does, so I must do it? You know what I mean? So when me and Mrs. Firebug eventually have kids, I think that's a good reason, well, for me anyway, to own a home so you're not, you know, at the mercy of your landlord and you don't have to move every couple of years, whatever, um, that's a pretty important reason to own a home for us, but right now we are happy to rent. And I, I think renting and saving a whole bunch of money and investing that money has been one of the things, um, we've been able to do to, uh, add to our snowball as quickly as we have. Had we bought a house, which we nearly did, funny story, we nearly bought a house back in 2013, I think, 2013, it absolutely would have stifled um, our progress towards fi- fire. Yes, we would own a home, and um, you know, knowing what I know now with the real estate market where we're from, um, it's it's easy to make the correct decision in hindsight. But uh, yeah, I often think about that uh, sliding doors and what happens and where we would have been at financially, especially if we had bought that house um, versus if we. You know did what we're doing now which was renting and investing the surplus. So um, definitely look at housing affordability and definitely question whether or not you actually need to own or whether or not renting is a viable option. So the second, second big one was food and I'm probably not the best person to ask about food advice because our grocery bill is quite high all things considering. We like our snacks and We buy really high quality produce and it's something that I've always never been too frugal about. And that's the quality of food, food that you put into your body. Buying, buying this stuff can be really expensive. Um, there are a few, there are like the obvious wins if you want to save money on food, like your classic packing your lunches and not going out too much. But honestly, I'm calling the kettle black a little bit with this one because since we've moved to London, we've been absolutely social butterflies and. Um, I would hate to look at our food and drinks category category um, over the last six months, but this trip is a bit of an exception, uh, and part of the whole experience of traveling the world for us was trying different cuisines and trying different restaurants. So it's a bit of a weird one. Um, when I do post our expen- expenses uh, for the last twelve months, they- I know for a fact they're going to be absolutely blown out, but it's a little bit weird because. This is a one, this was our once in a lifetime trip. So we don't plan to live like this. Like I know how we can live back home in our country town. And I've got a really good understanding of, of where the money goes. So this trip's a bit of a, you know, we're spending a lot of money on things that we, we won't be able to do ever again in our lives. So, um, it's a bit of a hard one. Plus, I just, our grocery bill is not the best. So <laughs> I'm, I'm bad for asking for advice, um, with food. I will say this though, cutting, Cutting down on meat can halve your food bill. We do a meatless Monday, although we haven't done one in a while, but we used to do it, and meat is really, um, it's super expensive. So if you can cut meat out of a lot of your meals, that's a super, super quick way to save a whole bunch of money. The third one, transport. Um, Being sensible with your car, and that's even if you need one, um, and holidays for that matter, uh, which was the fourth, the fourth one. It's such a personal choice because um, everyone's different, so it's hard to comment on. You need to st- you need to strike a fine balance between saving for your freedom and enjoying your life, especially bit of the uh, calling the kettle black here. You know, obviously I'm on this big trip over on the other side of the planet, so hard for me to comment on this one. But we delayed our fire date to live out a dream. And I wouldn't change anything about that decision, but uh, this is a super personal one. So um, you need to live your life. Make sure you're enjoying your life on the way to fire because it's not so much about the destination. You need to start building up the uh, principles and what's important to you and the life that you want to live now. And when you do reach financial independence, you're already living a great life and you have a lot more freedom and then you can slip into your new career which is whatever you're passionate about and what you truly um, find enjoyment doing. And if you're already in that job right now, then congratulations, you're already reaping the benefits but for a lot of people, they would um, rather be doing something else. Uh, Lastly, on on this poll question, the first step in all of this and everything that I've said here is to track your expenses. So do you know exactly where your dollars go? And if you do, uh, if you're already tracking your expenses, uh, Cameron, let me know and flip me the breakdown and I can provide a more detailed comment if you'd like me to do so. So I hope that answers your questions. Thanks for writing in. Hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Have a great Friday. Enjoy your weekend and I'll see you in the next episode. See ya.